0: Hello, you're listening to a very special episode of the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This week, we're proud to present Professor Heather Thompson's inaugural Pitt Lecture, American Prison Uprisings and Why They Matter Today, which was given at Magdalen College in Cambridge on the 27th of January 2020. We hope you enjoy it. A couple of technical issues. Uh, this lecture was recorded using the built-in microphone of a video camera, so apologies for the relatively poor audio quality, but hopefully it's audible enough. Also, Professor Thompson refers at several points in her lecture to images or graphs uh, from the slides of her presentation. Thankfully, we did also video record the lecture, so you'll be able to see that and the slides in question once that's uploaded to our YouTube channel in a couple of days. So keep an eye out for that. That's it from me. And until we return to our normal interview schedule next week, I'll leave it to Professor Gary Gerstle to handle the rest of the introductions.
1: Is the microphone working? Yeah? Okay. Uh, I'm Gary Verstel. uh Mellon Professor of American History, for those of you who don't know me. And it is my honor and pleasure uh, to welcome you to uh, the Pitt inaugural lecture. Uh, this is the second time we're doing it. It's still a relatively recent innovation. I want to tell you first a little bit about the Pitt Professorship, and then I want to tell you a little bit about our our Pitt Professor before I turn things over to her. The Pitt Professorship is officially the Pitt Professorship of American History and Institutions. It was established in 1944 through a gift of 44,000 pounds from the syndics of the University of Cambridge Press. And the name Pitt comes from the Pitt building where the Cambridge University Press used to be housed. 1944 is a significant date. It was meant to strengthen Anglo-American relations at a time when that relationship was was thought vital to the survival of liberty and democracy in the world. Since that time, for the last 75 plus years, the Pitt has brought to Cambridge some of the most distinguished historians, social scientists, and political theorists working in the United States of America. Among those on this roster, Richard Hofstadter, John Hope Franklin, Daniel Borsten, Robert Fogel, Eugene Genovese, Judith Sklar, Bernard Valen, Daniel Bell, Carol Gilligan, Eric Foner, Mary Beth Norton, David Blight, Ira Katznelson, Naomi Lamoureux, and now Heather Thompson. The Pitt Professors have been indispensable to American history at Cambridge. While the professorship is quite old, the inaugural, as I've said, is quite new. It is meant to be an occasion to celebrate the Pitt Professor and to learn from her. We Americanists have actually been learning from Heather a great deal this year already, and will continue to do so. But this is also an occasion for members from other of the many intellectual communities at Cambridge to partake of Pitt professor insight and wisdom. Heather received her PhD from Princeton in 1995. She taught first at the University of North Carolina, then at Temple. Since 2015, she has been professor of history and African American studies at the University of Michigan. I first met Heather, actually, I don't remember the exact year, but Heather might, but let me say 1988. If I'm off, I'm not off by much, by a year or two. Heather had just arrived at Princeton University to do a PhD, and I was then on the faculty of Princeton University. What I must remember about that first meeting was the fact that Heather had come with her first and then only child, Dylan Wilder, who was with us this evening, <laughs> was not yet part of the picture. That first meeting was a meet and greet, faculty meeting the new graduate students. It remains the only occasion in what is now my very long career where my first meeting with a graduate student included a child that encounter said a lot about heather she was going to follow her own path do things her own way she was going to be bold not a chance of leave, leaving her little loved one at home while meeting the faculty for the first time that never even crossed her mind and she was going to be resourceful creative and also determined to manage the intensity of motherhood and the intensity of phd studies at the same time. I say this now, uh, not because my intent is to comment any further on Heather's motherhood—I'm done, it's great— <laughs> but because that initial encounter was more revealing than I understood at the time about the kind of scholar Heather would become. Heather came to Princeton to do American labor history to study with Sean Lentz, who had just published his path-breaking book, Chance, Democratic and the Nineteenth-Century Working Class. Labor history was then in the vanguard of social history, not the laggard it subsequently became, although it is in the midst of a revival now, I'm pleased to say. It's taken a long time. Many of us who were working in the field, and I was then myself a labor historian, were determined to do for American labor history what the great English historian E.P. Thompson had done for English labor history. E.P. Thompson had written the making of the English working class. We were determined to write the making of the American working class. Workers rising, coming to a common consciousness of themselves as a class, sticking it to the bosses, and altering the political economy and society in profound ways. I now believe it was a serious, serious error for those of us in America doing labor history to take Thompson as a model. I will write something about that wrong term when I have the time. It's an interesting subject but not one for this evening. The point is that Wilentz well, was then a Thomsonian, an Edward Thompsonian, that is I was an Edward Thompsonian and we were trying to turn Heather into an Edward Thompsonian. But this project made no sense to Heather and she resisted. The only way that Edward Thompson could pull off his writing of the English working class was to ignore the Irish and the British colonies. The only way that those of us working in American labor history could write the making of the American working class was to ignore race. Heather had grown up in Detroit. Detroit had always had a multiracial working class. By the 1960s and 70s, Detroit had become a black city. One could not write about the working class in Detroit without writing about race. One could not write the story of this urban black working class uniting with their white brothers in the surrounding suburbs, all rising up with common consciousness, because it was not happening. So Heather Thompson tossed her E.P. Thompson aside and set out to write a different kind of history. At first she had few guides, so she dove into research, becoming the demon researcher that has marked every step of her career. She set aside preconceptions and theories about how workers ought to behave and began to ask questions about how they actually did behave. What were the issues that did matter to Detroit's black workers at work, in unions, in city politics, and at night when the Detroit working class quit work and went out to play? Her focus was on the years of Detroit's deindustrialization. Meaning that the link between the working class and work in the city was becoming more and more attenuated. The result of Heather's efforts was a marvelous dissertation and then book, Whose Detroit Politics, Labor, and Race in a Modern American City, published in 2001. There was a hint in that book of what was to come. Among the gripping sections of Whose Detroit was Heather's reconstruction of encounters between blacks and the Detroit City Police and captors that came increasingly to dominate both daily life and urban politics. Crime, criminality, police brutality, incarceration, surfaced in Heather's book as central elements of black working class life in Detroit. Heather decided to make those elements the central focus of her second book, Blood in the Water, the Attica Uprising in 1971 and its legacy. Blood in the Water, 15 years in the making, has been rightly celebrated as one of the most important history books to appear in the United States in the second decade of the 21st century. It has won numerous awards, including the highest (coughs) awards that are bestowed on a work of American history, the Bancroft Prize, and the Pulitzer Prize. You will hear about Attica prison uh, and the uprising and what came after shortly. It was a prison insurrection that shocked the nation. It occurred in New York State under the kind of liberal Republican governor (coughs) Nelson Rockefeller, who no longer exists. When Rockefeller sent in troops to brutally suppress the insurrection, he abandoned his humanitarian rehabilitative policies of prison reform and became a hard law and order man. This reaction to that revolt marked the beginning of America's mass incarceration regime, a regime that over the next four decades would lock up a greater number of individuals in the late 20th century both in absolute and proportionate (coughs) terms than virtually any other society on the face of the earth. Heather's goal became to uh, do justice to the story of Attica, its prisoners and its guards, and to understand the backlash that the insurrection unleashed. She also became determined to understand how a mass incarceration regime of this scope and brutality could take root in the land of the free and the home of the brave. In the process, Heather pioneered the field of carceral studies and the carceral carceral state in the United States. She is today one of its leading authorities consulted all the time, not just by academics, but by those seeking to reform America's prisons. She has a great deal to teach us. Heather Thompson, Eric Thompson, ended up quite a distance away from E.P. Thompson. But ironically, or perhaps not so ironically, Heather shares a great deal with her Thompsonian predecessor. Blood in the water, like the making of the English working class, is impossible to put down. The narratives of both texts sweep you away. Both authors are passionate about their subjects. Both are determined to rescue outcast populations from what Edward Thompson memorably called the condescension of posterity. Both authors are motivated deeply by principles of justice and morality. Both believe that getting history right matters to the kind of society in which we would like to live and that we might someday build. Heather, it is a great pleasure to have you with us today. Please join me in welcoming Heather Thompson, the 2019-2020 Pitt Professor of American History and Institutions at the University
2: Oh, my. Um, Thank you so much for that, Gary. Uh, Thank you all for being here. Uh, I have had the great pleasure of getting to talk about Attica all over the world um, and in many different Settings, but I have to say this one I'm having a little hard time starting. Uh, <laughs> thank you all for inviting me to Cambridge to be here this year. It's really been quite extraordinary, um, both the, the welcome I've received in the history department, uh, in other departments, criminology, people who are here who come tonight, but also my students, and and also of course uh, Dr. Gary Gersol. Uh, from whom i uh learned how to be a historian and the importance of history and from whom you all now uh get to learn so much and, and that is a that's a real gift um okay <laughs> let me uh, let me get started um i want to talk to you tonight about prison uprisings those dramatic moments when people locked up inside of prisons or jails suddenly erupt and we, the public, are suddenly forced to notice what our criminal justice systems actually look like in practice. I'm going to make the case that it's extremely important to look at these moments, to pay attention to them, both as citizens and also as scholars. As citizens, I want to suggest that these moments force us, as few others actually do, really to reckon with what it means to handle harm, and addiction and even violence the way that we do in our democracies they force us to question our blind faith in institutions of punishment not just whether they are humane but also whether they even accomplish what we are told that they do make us safer but these are also important moments for scholars to examine closely as well I will suggest to you this evening that they shine needed new light on critical shifts in national policy, particularly American policy, that I'm not sure we yet fully understand. Indeed, I'll suggest to you that by trying to understand one particular prison uprising that took place in 1971 in the United States, the Attica prison uprising, we can get a clearer understanding of why we are where we have landed today. In this country, or in the United States, uh, which is in the unenviable position of locking up more people than any other country on the globe and more than at any other time in our own history. But I also want to suggest that by trying to shine a light on this punitive turn, this moment in the United States, we can also in critical ways make, cle- make clearer uh, why we are where we are in other countries, including this one. So first, let me actually begin, uh, if you will, at the end of the story, which is, where are we today? What is it that uh, I felt pretty strongly we needed to understand, both as citizens, but also as scholars? This graph I want to share with you is uh, its called the whole pie of incarceration in the United States. And we don't have time to walk through every sliver of the pie, but it should astonish in many Respects. If you'll notice that the state prison system is only part of this enormous pie. This includes uh, children uh, in a state like my own, Michigan, it has about, includes about 400 children serving life without the possibility of parole. Um, it includes federal prisons, uh, prisons for native people. Uh, and, and this really actually doesn't even include many other spaces that we now consider carceral What this represents is about two and a half million Americans that are currently under lock and key. But it actually represents more than that. It represents the more than seven million who are under some form of correctional control. And this population isn't just any population. It is a deeply racialized population. The disparity between whites and blacks in the system is also astonishing. I compare it for you here with the, the, uh, the racial disparity of incarceration in South Africa at the height of apartheid to give you a sense of how disproportionate the American story actually is. And it's not just so many people and such racially dis- disparate groups of people, but it also, again, as I mentioned, makes us such an international outlier. This puts us next to countless other countries And I suggest it actually doesn't matter what countries are up here. We could put any country up here, and we are so far of an international outlier. To just zero in on that a little bit, if you look at the United Kingdom compared to the United States, or how about the United Kingdom even compared to California? You see that we are in bad shape in the United States, and actually in the United Kingdom, we might feel pretty good about the place that we are in until we notice something really interesting about the United Kingdom, which is actually, it takes a very similar trajectory to the United States, which is to say that the prison population in both countries remain remarkably stable throughout history, remarkably stable. And then suddenly, those population numbers go through the roof. Slightly different moments in slightly different countries, but the trajectory is the same, and therefore, It suggests to us that we have a lot of explaining to do, not just, again, as citizens, because this accounts for huge swaths of our budget. It locks up many of our children and our neighbors' children. But also, as a scholar, what happened here is worth trying to understand. And what I want to suggest to you is that by looking at this one prison riot, rebellion, it is not, by any means, the only thing that happened. But it is a real moment where we can freeze in time and look at history on the ground and see what its impact might have been. Because in fact, if we were able to pull back from this graph a little bit, and we were able to look more closely year by year, it isn't just that we go up really quickly with our prison population. We actually go up very specifically after about 1972. And there are complicated reasons for that, but I want to suggest to you, again, that I think Attica matters to this story in a way that I want to share with you. The story I want to share with you comes from the book that uh, Gary Gerstel mentioned, which is called Blood in the Water. And as he mentioned, this is a book that took a long time to research. not because, as Trevor Noah asked me on The Daily Show, because I typed like this, no, <laughs> to break the ice. I was so nervous. But, but actually, because the records were hidden to myself. It was, they, were, they were absolutely under lock and key. And that's because much of the trauma at Attica is still there. It is still lived. It is still really unexplained and unaccounted for. And so nobody wanted this story told. So it took a very long time. And I look forward. I know there's lots of graduate students that I'll get to talk to you tomorrow about that research moment and what it means to try to talk about something as a historian that nobody wants you to talk about. But first let me just tell you that story, a little bit of the glimpse of what this actually was. This is Attica. This is a very, very rural space in upstate New York. The town of Attica is minuscule. In fact, if you drive through it, it looks like a slice of Americana. It looks like a Norman Rockwell painting. One minute, you're next to the, to the bandstand in the middle of the town park and the local pool. And then the next minute, you pull out of town in this huge fortress. And that's what it looks like, a medieval fortress lies before you. This is a prison that was built during the Depression, and I can tell you it never really got updated. I was there several times, including in 2004. It looked exactly then like it did in 1932, and it is still an active maximum security facility that looks exactly as it did in 1932. In this facility in 1970 were two major groups of people. There were, um, as you see on the left, uh, young working class white guys from all over upstate New York who really had very few job possibilities, as you might imagine, in this rural community. Farming was largely drying up. and, And there was Vietnam, and you could go to Vietnam. And in fact, many of them had just come back from Vietnam. But basically, if you wanted to make a living, prisons were the economy of upstate New York. They weren't trained very well, they weren't paid very well, and the only people of color they had ever met were the people over whom they had infinite control inside of this facility. The people over whom they had this control heralded uh, disproportionately from the lower part of the state of New York, from New York City and its many the other boroughs, right from Brooklyn, from Queens, and so forth, largely from Brooklyn. And this population was also out of jobs, didn't have many prospects, many of whom were Vietnam vets, many of whom were drug addicted, many of whom had very little possibility of getting any kind of rehab and very little possibility of employment and ended up on the other side of the law. Just it is worth mentioning as well that at this moment in this time, Those kinds of acts, like poverty and lack of jobs, were highly scrutinized by police departments that had been newly uh, bolstered uh, thanks to something called the Law Enforcement Administration Act in 1965, a whole other piece of this history. The thing that these two groups had in common, though, was that they both understood that the institution that they were in was in serious trouble. The guards on the left had been telling their union reps day in and day out that this thing was about ready to explode. Why? Because there was no uh, no insufficient help for the guards. They were working far too much overtime with little pay. They were tired. They were fearful. They were poorly trained. And and when people are fearful and they are tired, they can become very dangerous and very aggressive and very mean. And this leads us to the other group that were the cat in this place. They too understood place was about ready to blow up in some manner because they were in seriously bad shape. They were being fed on 63 cents a day. They were uh, locked in their cells, sometimes 23 hours a day. The rules were capricious. You could get parole, for example, but you would never get out until you had literally been given an out-of-date phone book and told to write to various employers. And if they hired you, you could then get out of prison on parole. Needless to say, not too many employers were eager to hire someone postmarked Attica, New York, number 15678. So they knew that this was a crisis. But the thing was is that both of these groups had tried very hard (coughs) to work through the system to resolve what was becoming an untenable situation. Again, the guards were begging their union reps to (coughs) do something. Hire someone. We need more help. We need more training. We need more pay. And on the other side, uh, you had the prisoners who were saying to their same people, the, same, the, the union reps, the guards, the, the warden, they were writing letters to state senators. The thing was is that they all actually believed in the system, and that's what's really kind of remarkable about this entire story. They believed that if you just pointed out when something wasn't working that someone might do something. Well, they couldn't have been more wrong and in fact on september 9 1971 that prison did erupt this is a prison of, uh, of almost 2400 men incredibly overcrowded people triple bunked uh it's in bad shape and when it explodes it really does explode i will just make as a side note notice this photograph a lot of the photographs you're going to see uh, tell a story unto themselves Um, You might ask yourself who was taking the pictures, uh, why do these pictures exist, particularly as we get further in here. But September 9th explodes not because it had been planned, sure, there were civil rights activists in the yard, there were uh, Black Panther Party members, Young Lord Party members, but that's not why it actually exploded. Why it exploded was because prison management had made yet another foolish decision Capricious punishment, people are fearful, nobody knows what's going on, and all of a sudden, in the middle of one chaotic episode, a faulty gate opens up to the center of the prison. A faulty gate, by the way, that the guards have long been saying, this is not good, this gate is not good. Next thing you know, the entire prison is under control of prisoners. In this moment, in this moment, it was nothing short of a riot. And I use that word very carefully. A riot because it was chaotic. It was completely unclear whether there's any purpose to it. Everyone is terrified. Prisoners are grabbing anything they can to defend themselves from each other and from guards. Guards are grabbing anything they can to defend defend themselves from prisoners. People are being beaten. They are being killed. It's a horrendous, horrendous situation. And for 15 minutes at least, it is not at all clear that this is not going to be a bloodbath, one that other prison uprisings had certainly resulted in. But then something really, really remarkable happened. All of a sudden, cooler heads prevailed. And that was in no small part because there had been important discussions going on in the yard about the importance of civil rights and the importance of working through the system and, and actually thinking about things like representative democracy. And these discussions had actually taken root, so that in the middle of this chaos, some of the men in the yard said, look, we need to get out into the open to one yard. There were four major exercise yards. Let's go out to one of them, the one farthest from the road. Let's bring everyone outside, including the guards, because many guards have now been taken hostage. People are fearful, so they're grabbing any insurance policy they can. They go out into the yard and they surround the guards with two rings of prisoners to make sure that they are protected. They immediately immediately, uh, vote for representatives out of each cell block to speak for them. They make everyone turn in any weapons that they might have. They set up a medical tent. They set up a food distribution tent. They essentially set up an entire tent city. And even though these pictures would suggest to you, at least the former would suggest to you this is primarily an African-American uprising, that's actually not the case. This was a biracial, multiracial uh, episode. And previous factions were coming together because they understood something that was pretty profound. And that was that the American people had no idea what happened behind bars, and that this was an opportunity to bring the public inside. And so they asked for newspaper men to come in. They asked for television cameras to come in. And this became this extraordinary moment that was televised, that had microphones. There was was actually a loudspeaker up at the front of the negotiating table where everything that came out of the mouths of any prisoner at the front was translated into Spanish. Because there was lots of Puerto Rican prisoners who only spoke Spanish, who had, for example, disproportionately ended up in solitary, not understanding the commands or or what the guards had been saying to them. And so in this moment of really extraordinary participatory democracy, the world has to look. The world has to see what does a prison look like. And they didn't just bring in the media they actually went a step further they said we are so interested in this as an experiment in participatory democracy that we want to bring in observers to make sure that the state behaves fairly and to make sure that we have a message that is translated to multiple audiences on the outside and so they brought in some remarkable figures on the right was tom wicker he was a very noted columnist in the New York Times and they chose him because he had taken a quite sympathetic view of prison reform in his columns and they had remembered that because of course prisoners read all the time and they're they're avid readers of the local news and so that mattered to them that he spoke and then they wanted the middle guy anyone know Bill Kunstler radical lawyer American radical lawyer who they knew because he had defended uh, lots of black radicals, but also white radicals, particularly in Chicago, the Chicago Seven, and uh, particularly Bobby Seale, who was a Black Panther whom he had defended. So he was this kind of iconic lawyer. They wanted him there to kind of make sure that the state was behaving properly. And the guy on, the, on the, your left was Clarence Jones. He was the editor of a black newspaper called um, the Amsterdam News. And they wanted him because it was one of the few newspapers that would actually publish letters and poetry and writings that prisoners had sent in. So these are people that they very much respected to tell the truth as they saw it on the inside. But don't let this fool you, because the minute this happens, this so-called observers committee is going to be very large, about 40 people. And it's not going to just be the likes of Bill Kunstler, or even uh, uh, good white kind of mainstream liberals like Tom Wicker. It's going to include lots of Republican state senators. It's going to include uh, state officials that were not at all feeling kindly, uh, kindly towards prisoners. So this was a really mixed group of people. But the thing that united them was the conviction that this thing had to be negotiated. Why? Well, because on the inside, there were about 40 hostages. Guards and civilian hostages again, who had been very well taken care of, but they had suffered all the way in There was a lot of battered bruised faces There was a lot of particularly the guards that had not been very favorably uh, Seen by a lot of the prisoners had gotten their wax before they'd gone in and Also, this was really important that it got negotiated because something else had happened in that first initial moment of the riot Remember I told you the gate came open well, when the gate came open, the guy standing in the middle, kind of the Times Square, where all the four yards met, he was completely overrun for his keys. And he was kicked, and he was beaten. He was in bad shape. And the prisoners put him on a mattress, and they carried him out to make sure he gets get some medical care, where he then languished on the outside of the prison for a couple of hours before someone came to get him. But they nevertheless got him out. But nobody knew what his fate was. And everybody knew on the outside that these hostages matter, so one way or the other, this has to be negotiated. The other reason why they knew this had to be negotiated was because the state wasn't back taking it seriously. This guy on the left at the negotiating table, bottom left, he's the commissioner of corrections. His name was Russell Oswald. He was a uh, a very kind of good-hearted very kind of unfortunate man and so many he was really damned if he did damned if he didn't in this entire situation but he wanted this thing to be resolved peacefully and so he's in the yard these people are actually coming into the yard and there's in are at this negotiating table and i want to call your attention to this negotiating table for another reason the guy standing there you see the big guy with the sunglasses His name was Big Black. He was on the football team in the yard and in charge of security. So you'll hear more about him. And the other guy, the skinny guy with the granny glasses, you see him. That's L.D. Barkley. He kind of became known as Attica prisoner number one because he had a very famous speech in the yard. He says, we are men, we are not beasts, and we refuse to be beaten and driven as such. It's one of the most famous kind of Attica speeches coming out of the yard. And they believe it's possible they believe that negotiation matters that it's possible that they're doing what they should do and so for four long days and four very very long nights this negotiation goes on and it really is all day and all night in the book I try to take you into that really moment by moment because everything was turning on the moment you know Uh, a couple of times they were really afraid that the state was coming in that they were going to send in troopers, that there was going to be a bloody overtaking. And everyone panicked. And they was like, OK, no, it's OK. And they would continue negotiating. And, and one of the reasons they worried about this was because they had the TV cameras in there, but they couldn't really see much themselves what was happening on the outside. But what they did see was above their heads and ringing the yard were a whole lot of state police officers with guns. A whole lot of people peering in to know what was going on, and it made people very jumpy and very nervous. But nevertheless, it looked like things were going well. In fact, so well that of all the prisoners' demands that they, you know, spent a lot of time whittling down and and deciding what would be more, you know, what was a concrete demand versus an unrealistic demand. They came up with a list of demands about, I don't know, 25 at the end of the day, and. Oswald the Commissioner had agreed to about 23 of them now we now know that in fact he was hedging his bets and used language that was probably never going to make them stick but nevertheless it looked like this might settle and again let me stress to you how important it was that it settled because over those same four long days and four long nights if this is going on on the inside this is what's going on on the outside Every single state trooper battalion in upstate New York is descending on this tiny town and onto the lawn of this one prison, as are all off-duty corrections officers from around the county, the state. And what's happening is these guys are on the ground, and they are (laughs) furious. They also are not sleeping for those same four days and four nights. They are passing out weapons like candy out of the back of a car, at the back of this supply van. Nobody's writing down serial numbers. Nobody is indicating that Officer A took out weapon B. And in fact, the one hapless young trooper who's in there, he's trying to, okay, now I see you, Officer Jones, you just took out the submachine gun. Um, he's told to rip that up and they they want to get in they want to get in because they want to save the hostages they say but really it's actually more than that because they what they're itching for is revenge because there's something else going on here which is that the FBI is on the scene planting rumors telling them that inside of those walls that the guards, the hostages, are being forced to stand at attention with guns to their head. And should they fall, should they try to sit down, they would be shot in the head. Well, first of all, nobody inside had a gun. And second of all, everyone who was a trooper, at least in charge, would have known that that's not true, because they're looking inside of the yard. But that rumor mongering was rampant. Because let us be clear, this is 1971. This is on the heels of the Civil Rights Movement, and really still in the middle of it in the United States. And not only is the FBI interested in this, but let's put this in perspective. This is a tiny town in upstate New York. This is a state prison, not a federal facility. And from the moment that this happens, the FBI is on the scene. The local FBI sending teletypes blow by blow and also planning disinformation on the ground, but sending teletypes to the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, the CIA, the President, the Vice President, the Attorney General, you name it. And those indicate that this matters what's going to happen here, right? It matters what is going to happen. It matters that this challenge has happened. And it matters a lot that nobody in power thinks that this is a legitimate protest. They think it is the masterminding of black radicals. They think that it is the masterminding, uh, if you were the governor, of communist conspirators. He was a real cold warrior. A man by the name of Nelson Rockefeller, actually known as a liberal mayor I'm sorry governor of New York and he too is persuaded that this is not legitimate so when you put all of that together these guys on the ground who are itching to get in (coughs) every time one of the observers comes out and sees this they understand the importance of negotiating and so what happens is it looks like it's going to be fine except for then on the third night of the negotiations, the young man, his name was Billy Quinn, the young man, the guard who had been in the middle of that center of the prison, who had been overrun with the head injuries, died. And that was a game changer. Because then suddenly, not only are the people outside more furious than they've ever been, but the people on the inside are more terrified than they've ever been because they understand now that the most important thing most important part of the negotiation which had always been there as a demand and had kind of come and go gone was amnesty administrative amnesty that is you know you're not going to be given more time necessarily administratively but also criminal amnesty and they were terrified that because of the felony murder Laws in New York that every single one of them could have had a life sentence for the killing of Billy Quinn just by simply of being by being there. So amnesty is the sticking point. Now they don't say nobody can be can be charged with killing Billy Quinn. What they say is they want they don't want indiscriminate prosecutions, and they want amnesty for the act of having rebelled. And this is going to be is it. They're either going to agree or they're not. And everyone is waiting in bated breath. And the guy who can make this decision is Nelson Rockefeller. He is the man. He is the one that, the sweep of the pen, can just say, OK. Now, why should he have said OK? Well, according to all of his minions on the ground, all of the observers, many of whom he had put there, they said, look, at the very least, you have 40 state employees in there doesn't prevent you from prosecuting anyone it doesn't prevent law from from following up on this but we have to have some measure of amnesty and He says very jovially very pleasantly "Nope, I'm not going to do it he's not at all interested in this and in fact uh, again this is a this is a later part of the story but I happen on a pretty extraordinary um, cache of documents that really indicated a lot of the reason why he didn't want to And it would turn out that there would be a a huge, huge attempt on the part of his administration to kind of cover up what had happened after this. So we now know more than we used to know. But at the time, no one could figure out what what, I don't understand. Amnesty would at least solve this enough. He says no. So the observers, again, let me be clear, the observers are the dispassionate group of people who are on the ground seeing what's going on. Go to the American people. They say, forget basically the governor. And they issue this call for the American people to approach the governor themselves. And if you read this statement, you can see that they mince no words. If this is not negotiated, a massacre will occur. And again, that's because they can see what the prisoners cannot see, which is the passing out of the weapons indiscriminately. But here's the thing. Rockefeller was not interested in this settlement at all. And we now know that, in fact, there had never been an intention to settle this thing peacefully. There was always going to be a forcible retaking. And so that this experiment in participatory democracy that everyone was putting their heart and soul in was, in many ways, a complete charade. And so on the fifth morning of this event, it is September, in upstate New York. It is cold. It is raining. And on this fifth morning, as prisoners are waking up, they think that negotiations are still in play. And they think that not because they're just Pollyannish and pie in the sky. They think this because actually prison officials have come to the gate. And have said to them the same thing they said every morning okay today is the day you need to release the hostages and then we'll continue talking it's over boys and they said what they said every day no no thank you we'll continue to negotiate (laughs) and actually I found the document that made clear that the reason why they didn't think there was an ultimatum that day is because in big letters it said do not give them an ultimatum because they didn't want them to understand what the stakes were. And so on that fifth morning, and this is really a kind of extraordinary, heartbreaking moment, if you could just imagine taking yourself there, where people, the the people who have been deemed the least reliable, the most criminal, the most dangerous, have more faith in the system. They have taken care of the guards. The guards, by the way, have been interviewed by the press. And the guards say, yeah, now that we understand better, let's give them what they need. Let's settle this, right? It's no big deal. By the way, what did they want? You know, better food. <laughs> you know, be able to see their children. You know, have better visitation, more clear parole. I mean, they, they, it was the most bet, list of bread and butter demands that you could imagine. And they said, yeah, give it to them. So, so everybody thinks this might work. And then on that fifth morning, it's gray, it's drizzling, it's freezing, and they hear a helicopter whirring up and making, coming up over the prison. Remember, they're all outside. And there's a whoop of exhilaration and clapping because they actually think that Rockefeller might be coming. Because in fact, the observers had said, can you at least come here? Can you at least? Stand outside of this prison if you can't give them amnesty. Can you at least tell them that if they surrender they'll be okay? Nope. Was not interested in doing that. So this, so they think maybe Rockefeller's actually gonna do that. He's gonna come. This is finally gonna end. Because everybody wants it to end at this point. And then the helicopter flies off. And panic ensues because then suddenly people understand this is not at all what the other days it looked like and in fact all those troopers that had been on the roof they were gone and there were no observers coming to the gate and people absolutely panicked and so what they did what they decided to do was to put in place a plan and they talked about the plan it turned out to be an extremely ill-fated plan but the plan was that if we are desperate if there's nothing else we can do let's take some of the hostages up on these catwalks which overlook the yards and let's surround them with a few prisoners on each side with some of our makeshift weapons you know some baseball bats and some carved up makeshift knives and that way when if that helicopter comes back just hold see if you come in you're, you're killing your own let's get back to the negotiating table and in the book, I take you up on, you're there, you're on the catwalk with these people. And, you know, I take you, for example, to this moment when there's one of the guards, whose name is Mike Smith, and he is terrified. <laughs> he is shaking, he is physically ill. And one of his captors, his so called executioners, is a guy named Don Noble. And Don Noble and he had worked together. In the metal shop and in fact it was because of Don Noble that Mike had gotten into the yard safely and protected and they're up there and Mike is saying like as he's shaking so badly he can't reach into his own pocket he says to Don can you can you get in my pocket because if something happens to me in my pocket I've written down my wife's name it's Sharon And and if I don't get out of here can you give her this note and tell her that I love her and then Don says basically his you know exchanges his information and they're both just like we can't believe it's come to this and then Don basically still believes no it's okay man they're not you know they're gonna care about you and and Mike this white young guard 24 years old he's, he's not thinking so anymore it's not looking that way next to him Ron Kozlowski another you know young white kid the guy next to him is so nervous that his fake you know he's not fake is mean, a real weapon, but his, Makeshift weapon is kind of like shaking behind him, and he says, Can I give you a Tums? I mean, it's just this crazy situation where people are absolutely terrified. And right at that moment, they're up there, and as Mike describes it, all of a sudden, another helicopter starts to come over, and it is much, much bigger than the one that came before, so close and so large that, as Mike says, you could feel the concussion in your chest. And that helicopter dropped canisters of CN and CS gas across the yard. And unless you're a veteran of protests in the 60s, what does it mean to, to, What's tear gas really mean? Well, it's not really gas at all. It's actually powder. And when those canisters exploded, the powder clung to everyone's mucous membranes, went down their throat. And so you can actually see in the footage, because yes, the state police were filming all this, the canisters drop, and it mows everybody over. They are retching, they are vomiting, and they are blinded. And right at that moment, this begins which is hundreds and hundreds of state troopers set out over the catwalks, and all you can hear is shooting. They have their own weapons. They have state issue weapons. They have ammunition outlawed by the Geneva Convention. They have hunting rifles with bullets in them that expand on impact to cause maximum destruction. And all you hear, actually, you hear two things you also hear that helicopter the first one is going around and around and through a loudspeaker it's saying again and again and again surrender with your hands up and you won't be harmed surrender with your hands up and you won't be harmed to the sound of da 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 and needless to say within 15 minutes it is utter carnage there were remarkably only 10 guards, and 29 prisoners who were shot to death. And these are some of the horrific images. Again, you can talk about, well, we can't. We, we're not going to have a Q&A. But I can tell you that what's really remarkable about these images is that this entire thing was chronicled in really, really powerful ways <coughs> by the police. And then these photographs were denied to exist for many decades. So many people died, but actually, this does not tell the whole story. A total of 128 men were shot. Some of them six, seven, eight times. And in the middle of this, I'll come back to this, but in the middle of this, the American people are, what happened? They're on the outside. What happened? What happened? What happened? And so the state officials step outside of the prison within 15 minutes to tell the American people what happened. Now, this is critical because they said, that what happened was something completely different than what had happened. They actually said that the prisoners had killed the hostages. That all was good, order was established. That any death and destruction was down to the prisoners. And in fact, these guys, these prisoners, were so barbaric, they were so animalistic that they'd actually castrated one of the guards and shoved his testicles in his mouth. That's that's what we're dealing with when we're talking about prisoners. And the American people are stunned. And why did they care? Because this is 1971, and only a year earlier, the polling data was clear. Most Americans had actually decided they were in favor of prison rights. In fact, we were decarcerating. We were moving away from warehousing people more towards community corrections. In fact, most Americans were coming around to the idea that we shouldn't reinstitute the death penalty. It's a bad idea. But this story, this lie, went out on the front page of the New York Times, and I don't know if you can see this, but basically the bottom of it says this re- this act that the prisoners did reflects a barbarism wholly alien to civilized society. And what was it all down to? The increasingly revolutionary set of demands. And this rhetoric, it's the front page of the New York Times, that the prisoners have killed the hostages. It is the front page of the LA Times. And here's what really matters. It went out over the AP. And in the, in the American the, the media, this essentially sends out a story to the wire, which meant it was on the front page of every small town in America. And Americans read this, and it actually, a lot of the observers were told this and said, "Oh my God! I, we, we thought we were, you know, we were down for civil rights, but what? This is horrific!" And in that moment, America decides prisoners are animals. But this is actually what was going on, and why didn't we know it? Because prisons are our most closed institutions. What was going on was horrific torture for days for weeks for months and I just call your attention right here to the this picture of the two pictures on the right and forgive the graphic nature but this is big black why is he on this table because he's the one that the that the state officials have said have castrated a guard the guard they said had been castrated was Mike Smith the one I told you about the one whose wife is named Sharon Mike had been castrated. Mike had been shot four times in precision across his abdomen by a fellow corrections officer who did not like the fact that he was sympathetic to the prisoners. But because of this, Black is tortured for hours and hours and hours. The picture on the bottom is six hours after he's been tortured and then he's about ready to go into solitary where it's all going to start again. Again, these pictures are taken. As nothing less than lynching photography. That is to say, they are taken by police officers who then hold on to them. And I will leave this image for a moment just so I can continue the story without us looking at that horrific image. But remember the other tall guy, the skinny guy, the guy with the granny glasses, LD? He was 21. He was there for driving without a license you know, Attica, the worst of the worst. Well, yeah, sure, there was a lot of guys who committed a lot of harm. There was a whole lot of young kids in there on parole violations, too, and LD was one of them. And while I was doing the research on this, I heard from someone that would know that actually the rumor was true, that actually LD had been killed after order had been established in the prison. And I said, how do you know that? she said quietly with tears because I know the correction officer who has his granny glasses on his mantle so the American people are getting one story but behind the scenes is entirely another And compounding this the guard families are also being traumatized they've also lost their husbands their brothers their sons and they've been told that the prisoners are the ones to blame. And so if you actually go to Attica, New York today, and you ask you know, anyone on the street randomly who killed the hostages of Attica, chances are they'll tell you it was the prisoners. That lie was durable. But even worse, they too were taken advantage of by the state. In fact, what happened was these women, overwhelmingly widowed women, who did not work other than the most important work, which is to stay home taking care of six, seven, eight children. These are a lot of Catholic immigrant families in upstate New York. They've all been rendered completely without income. And so the state officials come to their houses and they say, you know, Mrs. Cunningham, Mrs. Cunningham had you know, seven children. Mrs. Cunningham, here's a little check to tide you over. This so, little, you know, we know you need to buy groceries. And, People were glad to get it forty two dollars eighty two dollars and what they never told them but my book was able to document that they knew was that by cashing those checks they had elected a remedy under New York state law to never sue their employers under workman's comp so these people were swindled lied to and the prisoners were swindled and lied to the story that I tell had major implications. As I suggested to you, the lies mattered. It changes a generation's understanding. Not everybody's understanding. Everyone who was inside knew what the truth was. You know, the activists who had come to the prison to try to help knew what the story was, but, but most Americans didn't know what the story was. And there were heroes and heroines in the story who tried to tell the story. There was the coroner who gets the bodies, and he can see clearly that they all have bullet wounds. And he goes public, and he tries to tell the story. But you know, and then it's too late, and Rockefeller orders two more guys to come in and oversee his work, and it's just a mess. And while the autopsies are being done, the troopers are going to the morgue and intimidating the coroner and they're showing up at the funeral home in fact Mrs. Cunningham who I just mentioned she goes to the small-town funeral home to see her husband and it's a tiny town you know they all know each other Bob, you, the, the the what is it Marley's funeral home they all know each other and Mr. Marley is white as a sheep when she gets in there because there's so many troopers everywhere and he's being pressured to sign an affidavit that her husband has been shot but instead he calls her into the back room and he kind of looks around and he lifts up the sheet so she can see her husband, and he goes like this because he wanted her to see that her husband had in fact been shot. So some people knew, but most people did not. The story I tell it does not end there. The book, the, the the book is of the first quarter of the third of it is about the uprising, and then we talk about all the incredibly important investigations, which by the way could only go so far because. What eventually became clear during this book was, again, as I said, there had been, and historians do not use this word lightly, there had been a cover-up. That is to say, quite literally, documents had been removed. Quite literally, photographs had been spliced. Film had been deliberately damaged. Things had gone deliberately into fireplaces. And in fact, Rockefeller, in the month after this event, had a series of secret meetings at his compound in upstate new york poconico his mansion and you can't make this up in the pool house where the head of the state police was there the attorney general was there the same people who had committed the atrocities were placed in charge of investigating the atrocities quite literally and so then not only the american people been told that the prisoners killed the hostages then All the prisoners are indicted for crimes related to the uprising. And so then the American people watch over the course of five years as all of these black and brown prisoners are paraded in and out of courtrooms, and again, cementing the message that prisoners are responsible for all that went wrong at Attica. I don't end the book there. I tell you that nobody ever gives up easily and the prisoners then had a 30-year fight to be heard and for justice and so did the so did the guard families. And I try to leave the story on the optimistic note that again that the irrepressible desire to be treated as human will in fact be the final word but it is hard as a scholar not to really reckon with what it meant, that at it, critical, critical turning point, that suddenly all that seemed possible in terms of justice and rights seemed absolutely like a lie, absolutely like a betrayal. And by the way, for those of you who do modern American history, it wasn't just Attica, of course. It was Kent State. It was Chicago 68. It was Wounded Knee. It was Orangeburg, South Carolina. We could go on and on. And so somehow, in a decade where the preponderance of violence is state violence, the American people come out of it saying, we want more. We want fewer civil liberties. We want more power for the police. And it's really a phenomenally counterintuitive and I refer to it as sort of the politics of the ironic. But at least for criminal justice, it has a profound impact. It matters. And I want to leave you with why just a few thoughts about why I think it actually matters so much, at least in terms of the long-term legacy. It not only helps to explain why we get mass incarceration. And why it is that an entire generation is so eager then to dismiss the claims of people who have been charged with a crime as having any civil rights. And not only that, to take it a step further and ask for there to be more punitive measures taken against them. Not just restrict their liberty, but it's okay to have solitary confinement. It's okay to have corporal punishment. It's okay to have the electric chair again. It's okay to do things that had been on their way out. But it's also the case that the consequences of that still tie back to prison uprisings. In the United States today, the conditions have gotten so bad that we now have rashes, new rashes, of prison uprisings. It's so incredibly noticeable, and nobody quite knows what to make of them. So we have all these exposés coming out of Alabama, coming out of South Carolina, as we speak coming out of Mississippi's Parchman Farm, where the violence is horrific, where people are begging for help. In South Carolina, I actually did this piece about prisoners. They were contacting me on their cell phones and showing me the conditions that they were living in. And they had been on lockdown for months. So nobody could, they couldn't get any word out to their attorneys, they couldn't get anything out to anybody. And we don't know it because it's completely locked up. And why is it completely locked up? Because again, we have abdicated from the idea, the idea that we have responsibility for people who have committed a crime, however that is defined. Well, it turns out that this actually has relevance even outside of the United States. There are many, many countries that have much, Lower incarceration rates than we, than we do. But with the exception of one, which is Finland, which is, ex- is an extremely interesting kind of reversal of this history, Finland was extremely punitive and grew more liberal. With the exception of Finland, every country starts to experience this upward spike. And it's just a question of which country as to how much and when it does. So let's just talk quickly about the UK. So the UK, actually, let me back up a little bit on that. So the UK, like the US, has had a very brutal long history with poor prison conditions. And some of you might already know, I, I don't want to get this exactly wrong, so I want to actually refer to my notes. But in the UK, specifically in Strange Ways Prison, I and mean, of that in 1990 was a prison uprising as dramatic as that and it is a fascinating story of very much like attica where everyone watching it everyone who knew anything about it all the people on the ground at it were really clear why it had happened horrific conditions horrendous overcrowding unimaginable abuses so much so that when it was all over with repairs coming to about 555 million pounds after similar prison uprisings had been sparked across england scotland and wales after one prisoner had been killed 147 prison officers and 47 prisoners had been severely injured when all that was done the British government announced a public inquiry into what had happened at Strange Ways Prison, headed by Lord Wolfe. And the resulting Wolf report, and we've had plenty of those reports in the United States as well, made clear that prison conditions had been intolerable and recommended a major reform of the prison system. The Guardian newspaper described the report as a blueprint for the restoration of, quote, decency and justice. Into jails where conditions had become intolerable. Now, I just told you that this was in 1990. Can you see this graph in any measure of clarity as to when the most dramatic spike in imprisonment happens? About in 1990. And like in Attica, Despite what the experts said, despite what the prisoners themselves said, and actually even despite what the guards inside were saying, the spin on what had happened was completely different. Now, I'm not writing a history of Strange Ways Prison, but it only took a cursory look at the media coverage of that prison to see the exact same phenomenon, the stoking of the fears of insurrection and the racialized fears were palpable and powerful and their legacy was pretty dramatic. And in so much so that here we go again in the UK. We now then end up in 2016 with another horrific, horrific prison uprising dubbed the worst prison riot since Strange Ways. It was a full 25 years later more than 500 men explode over four wings of that notorious prison again like Attica this one was built in 1849 so it's a little bit older but you get the point point. and then of course just this past August in HMP Winchester another explosion of this Victorian jail and the Prime Minister of course responds and says you know terrible conditions know oh, Not the, the jail officials say terrible conditions and so forth but the main message that came out of it and this is very important was to solve the problem of the criminal justice system by building more prisons by modernizing prisons in this case to call for 10,000 new prison places and to make sure that anyone who runs afoul of the law does the maximum time with the with the least access to the democracy, the most punitive measures possible. And as Forrest Johnson himself has said, because the only way to deal with animals is to keep them in their cages. But as history shows, of course, and I think Attica shows, but not just Attica, any of these important, powerful Prison history shows that the people inside are not, in fact, animals in the way that Boris Johnson would have us believe, or in the way that Nixon would have had us believe after Attica. Governor Rockefeller calls Nixon on the 13th of September after Attica has been stormed, and after there's carnage, and it's obvious things are gone <laughs> really, really, really badly. And he says, Mr. President, you know, uh, you know, long day at Attica, and, you know, Nixon is quite, you know, good job, good job, you certainly have to, you know, you showed those, you know, Tom Wickers of the world what's up. But then, all of a sudden, he hears that, ah, wait a minute, guards were killed? Mm. And the first thing that Rockefeller says, oh, yeah, yeah, but, it, you know, but they were already dead, and then, and then, and then Nixon says, can you prove that? There's a little, you know, well, you know, the good thing is they went to a Catholic hospital, and we feel like we've got some connections there. <laughs> but then it's clear, in the subsequent phone calls, that well, there's no way around this one, right? And so Nixon only has one question. And he says, was this a black business? And Rockefeller says, why, yes, basically, why, yes, Mr. President, oh, yeah, this was the black business. But of course, it wasn't a black business. It was a human business. It was a multiracial business. And that business and the consequences of getting it wrong and the consequences actually of getting history wrong or not actually probing far enough past the archive, because in this case, there was no archive, uh, the implications, the policy implications themselves make history. And so I just want to leave us with that thought because certainly the way we have understood the punitive term is because crime got out of control. And that's why we started building prisons, that's why we began locking everybody up. And it wasn't actually till historians started looking at it, and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. wait, actually, the murder rate hadn't been that low when we started the war on crime than it had been since the 19 teens. And actually, the violent crime rate skyrocketed once we were knee-deep in the war on crime. And so history matters, and I think the story matters because it isn't just the US. It isn't just about prison uprisings. I want to hopefully suggest that it's about all societies that imagine that they have a democracy. They imagine that they have institutions that are responsive to the people who live in them, and they imagine that at least prisons are doing social good, not social harm. Thank you.